Does this help? Hello? There we go. Okay. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, We have had an amazing several months um, as a church, hearing from our various elders studying through the book of Colossians. Through all of them, over almost a dozen weeks of teaching, uh, one message has been proclaimed above all. The supremacy of Christ and our need to follow him. Um, As well, I want to thank Matt McDermott for preaching two weeks ago, and for whether we're talking about uh, Matt McDermott's sermon or any of the elders, um, if you've missed any of them, I would highly suggest going back on our website and watching them. Uh, They are well worth your time. Uh, We have one more week until uh, Pastor Tim is back from his sabbatical, Um, so I was asked to step up... um, to the plate, I guess you could say. I'm Pastor Stewart. Um, I work with the youth ministry here at Big Woods Bible Church. Um, but most importantly, uh, my prayer here is this morning that God's word will be faithfully proclaimed and faithfully preached. And on that, let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you uh, that we can just come together this morning uh, to open up your word, to study it, Um, to learn about you and to learn who we are before you, God. As we go forward, God, I pray that our hearts would be open, um, that we would look um, to you for guidance and that your Holy Spirit would work within us. And God, I also pray for myself um, that, God, you would guard what I say and make sure that nothing that comes out of my lips is against your word. As we go forward, let us honor you. In your name we pray. Amen. So our text this morning, I decided to jump to something entirely differently. Um, if you turn to Mark 10, 13 to 16, um, we're going to be there. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. I'm going to give you a second to get to that passage. Mark 10, 13 to 16, it should be on the screens in front of you as well. Alrighty. Mark 10, 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. Now, we read this from Mark 10, but there's actually an identical narrative, near identical narrative, in Luke 18, 15 to 17. In addition, the teaching of this passage is repeated yet again in Matthew 18, 1 to 4. That time directed towards the disciples, but the same message still. Clearly, there's something in this that we need to understand if it's repeated by three different gospel authors. So let's dive into it. Back to Mark 10. People are bringing children to Jesus. Now we can probably presume that that the people bringing these children are most likely the parents. It's never spelled out, but we can probably assume that. And they're bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. This seems somewhat odd to us today, Uh, but parents bringing their young children to great men, uh, great teachers, rabbis, uh, would have not been unusual at this time in Jewish culture at all. However, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are entirely lacking any sort of detail on this, so it's not the point of the narrative. As well, the disciples are trying to stop the children from coming. The disciples are probably thinking uh, these children are just not worth Jesus' time. They're still fallen, um, immature in their understanding of the gospel and of what Jesus is about, so we have to forgive them for that. And Jesus actually rebukes them for this. Let the children come to me. He says, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the primary question, the question we have to answer to understand this text is what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Maybe the first question even before that is what is the kingdom of God? It's an unusual phrase. It's a phrase generally only used within the Gospels. Um, And even more so, it's generally only used by Christ more so than any other individual. We could spend weeks tearing it apart and studying it in detail, um, but if we want to be brief, it's God's redemptive reign. The kingdom of God was inaugurated by Christ in Mark 1.15. Christ describes himself as the kingdom, Luke 17.21. And Christ is and will be the king of this kingdom, Revelation 19.16. To receive this kingdom, to receive God's redemptive reign is to acknowledge the truth of the redemptive reign of God, the truth of the gospel. The good news that our king has come, that he has lived a perfect life. He's died a death that he didn't deserve and rose again to defeat death and sin. Our receiving the kingdom, our accepting the gospel, is recognizing God's redemptive reign. Not only in our own lives, but in all things. In short, to receive the kingdom of God is to accept and recognize the truth of the gospel. But how are we to do this like a child? What do the authors mean when they're asking, um, advocating it for us to receive the kingdom of God like a child? What childlike aspect are we to have in regards to the gospel, in regards to our faith? That's the question I really want us to tackle today. And maybe we first need to qualify, okay, what does a childlike faith not mean? What are the things they don't mean by this? A childlike faith does not mean a childish faith or a childish nature. We are not called as children, we're not called as Christians, sorry, we're not called as Christians to be immature children. Colossians 1, 28-29 calls us to be taught with all wisdom so that we may become mature in Christ. We're not called to immaturity. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And if we want maybe the best example, if we would look at the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is written as a father to his son to instruct his son and to move him towards maturity, towards wisdom, not childishness. So as Christians, we're not called to childishness in our life or in our thinking, yet we are called to a child-likeness in some aspect of our faith. And maybe it could be innocence. Children are pure and innocent, right? Maybe we, we need to come to Jesus that way. 
Well, for one, the idea of children being innocent is somewhat of a Western society invention. The authors and um, uh, the readers of this original gospel would not have thought of children as innocent. It's kind of a renaissance on thing, if you look historically. As well, since I've got a bunch of people smiling back at me, you, you know children are not per se innocent. You don't need to teach your three-year-old to lie. You don't need to teach your four-year-old to talk back. You really don't need to teach your 14-year-old to talk back either. If you have a kid and you have brownies on the table and you say, don't eat the brownies, and you come back five minutes later, you're like, did you eat the brownies? No. So that's smeared all over your face then. Children are not innocent. We don't need to train them to sin. As well, this is contrary to the entire rest of Scripture. The entire rest of the Bible teaches that we are sinful and fallen people. If we have to be pure and innocent to come to Christ in the first place, we're, we're doomed. We're done. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not innocent. We are not pure. So if this passage is not referring to a childishness of our faith, I guess we could say, and it's not referring to us being innocent, what is this childlikeness we are called to have? This childlikeness we are called to have from this passage is that of a total dependence upon Christ. Uh, allow me to back up a little bit and explain. Uh, the Greek word used for children um, in this Mark passage is pehia. It's a generic word for children. It could talk about a one-year-old. It could talk about a 14-year-old. It's If you're under 18, you're pehia. You're a child. Um, the Luke passage, however, remember I said they're identical pretty much, um, uses almost all the exact same words except for one. It uses the word brefe, which means babies. In addition, both passages speak of Jesus taking the children in his arms. I'm a pretty big guy, but I'm not picking up a 14-year-old in my arms. Listen, chucking him into a pool or something. like you, you just don't do that. So we're probably not talking about a 14-year-old. We're probably not talking about a 10-year-old. Probably not a 6-year-old. We're probably looking at a baby, an infant. Maybe a toddler. Someone who is extremely young. Someone who is dependent on others. So for those of you uh, with infants or toddlers, I know we have the bad horse and the fries somewhere in here, and I can pick on them. How does your child pay you back for care, food, and housing that you provide them? <laughs> I'm guessing from that laughter, we already know what the answer is. They don't. Maybe dirty diapers, we'd rather them keep those, but they don't pay us back. They can't possibly pay you back for that. They are dependent upon you for simply gifting those things to them. Your infant is not going to get a part-time job and start paying you back for baby food. It doesn't work that way. I don't have a kid, but I know that doesn't work out that way. There is no trade. There is no... Uh, they don't pay you back in any way. You have to gift that to them. Your infant is dependent upon you for care. What we must recognize is this. Just as a child is dependent upon a parent and just must accept their care as a gift, we are dependent upon God 
and can only be given the gift of forgiveness and salvation as a gift. We can only be given as a gift. This is, this is the faith we're called to have in Christ. A complete and a total dependence on him. Recognizing that we bring nothing to the table of value. That what we receive from Christ is something that is gifted to us. That childlikeness that we are called to have is the acceptance that we don't earn anything from God. We're only given it. Because as adults, like if someone comes up and like they want to give us something, like let's say I came into the office and Pastor Aaron brought me a coffee. It's like, okay, Stuart, I got you a coffee. As adults generally are like, okay, I, I got to pay you back somehow. I might not pay you back in a moment, but I'm going to like give you a coffee next week. Whereas children, they're just, well, I hope we don't give children coffee. They don't need it. But like if we give them something, they're just like, yay, it's great. They accept it as a gift. Just as we are called to accept our salvation and forgiveness as a gift. Because that's the only way it can be given to us. Period. If you don't believe me, let's look at the very next narrative in Mark 10. If you read on down the page in your Bibles, unlike the childlike dependent faith we're called to have, there's a narrative of the, uh, the rich young man, or it might be listed as the rich young ruler in your translation, in Mark 10, 17-22. And he takes a different approach to this. He approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus engages him in discussion, and there's some back and forth, and Jesus tells him the commandments. And Then the young man replies, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. The young man attempts to justify himself. He is just trying to justify why he should have eternal life. But we know, not only from this narrative, but also throughout Scripture, especially if you read through Romans, that our holiness, our keeping of the commandments, is always going to fall short. It's never going to be enough. His holiness, our holiness, is never going to justify ourselves before a holy God. Now, you, you, you might respond, well, if that young rich man had just stole his possessions, if he had done that deed like Christ asked, it might help. It, it might even make all the difference. And, and I would strongly disagree with you. Our good deeds are not enough. Isaiah 64.6 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Other translations might say that all of our good deeds are like a dirty rag. I once even explained this passage to the youth group as all of our good deeds are like dirty underwear. It's actually kind of an accurate translation. That our best deeds, the best things we can do, the most righteous things we can do, are contaminated by our sin. They fall desperately short of God's standard. And I'll be honest, have you ever tried to pay off a debt with dirty laundry? You ever tried to pay someone back with dirty underwear? It's not really worth a whole lot, is it? In fact, if you owed me $5 and you tried to pay me back that way, I'd say, please keep it. I don't want it. It is not capable of paying off our debt and justifying ourselves. It's worthless. And finally, 
our abilities, our gifts, talents, whatever you want to call it, are not enough. There is no heavenly NFL-like draft to becoming a Christian. God does not look down from heaven and think, man, I think that Stuart guy is pretty cool. I want him on my team. There are more competent, there are more organized, there are more cool, awesome, capable individuals than myself by far who are much better teachers and preachers who God could have placed in this position than me. And if we're going to be entirely honest, God could just come down from heaven and preach this morning and do a much better job than myself or any other human could have possibly done. I am unnecessary, you could argue, to God. God using fallen people in ministry is not due to his need for us. It is a blessing for us that God uses us because we don't have things of value amongst ourselves to offer back. God gifts us the opportunity to serve him and to be a part of his plan on this earth. We bring nothing to the table. Our self-assessed holiness is not enough. We fall desperately short of his standard. Our righteous deeds, like Isaiah says, are dirty rags. Falling yet again short and tainted by sin. Our abilities are honestly inconsequential. Because God could do a better job all by himself if he desired. We do not follow the gospel. We are not given the gift of eternal life by some quality which we possess. We are given it as a gift from God. I I, I can't stress this enough. We are children dependent upon him, bringing nothing of value. There's no bargaining or trading because we have nothing to trade. And even if we did have something to trade, who knows what that would be, it certainly would not approach even close to the worth, the value of what Christ gives us. The forgiveness of our sins before a holy God and salvation to spend eternal life with him. This utter dependence and total reliance upon the undeserved generosity and undeserved grace from God is what's to be the mark of Christians. And it doesn't matter who you are. I I don't care if you're an inerrancy-affirming Calvinist or someone who just picked up the Bible for the first time last week. Whether you are the most moral person, philanthropist that you know, or a convicted felon. Whether you're an individual who holds three PhDs, or you're just some kid in elementary school. We are all equally lost and equally dependent upon God's grace for salvation. None of us bring anything, anything to the table at all that causes us to receive salvation upon merit or achievement. We have nothing. We can only receive it as a gift like a child. We can only receive it through complete and childlike dependence upon Christ. This recognition of it being a gift from God should drive us to our knees in worship of him. Now, while we are all still sinners, a perfect and holy God sent his son to die in our place. That we come as children empty-handed, dependent on him, and he will forgive us and give us salvation. That is the point and the purpose of this passage. 
that Jesus wants us to recognize that just as an infant is dependent upon their parents, we are dependent upon God for his grace, for his gifting. That we do not approach him like the rich young man in the next narrative with our self-proclaimed accolades and us thinking that we can justify ourselves. But that we approach God as a young child coming with childlike faith and dependence to his father. Now, what I've discussed has already happened to some of us, that those of us who are Christians, individuals who have thrown themselves upon the mercy of Christ, making him the Lord and Savior of our lives, have already done this. And that's wonderful. But I do not want us to be mistaken that this is a fact that we can sort of push off to the side or now forget about. On the contrary, this is something that we must continue to remember as we continue our walk with Christ. So there's two points of application I want us to discuss just a little bit further this morning. We are, as children of God, still dependent on Him. We are still children dependent on their Father. Just as we are dependent on God for our justification are being made right, we continue to be dependent on God for our sanctification. It is God who continues to work within us, transforming us into the likeness of his Son. We are still dependent upon God to ultimately make changes in our lives. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 3.7 So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Are we required to be active participants in this? Yes. Should we read our Bibles? Yes. Should we pray? Yes. Should we pursue holiness? Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, the the mover and, and the changer in our hearts is God because it is a supernatural act. Our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ, is an act of God which we are dependent on him for. Finally, since we've discussed much today about how we are to be dependent upon God, I feel I'd be doing a disservice if I did not at least lay out some encouragement in regards to our relationship with God, if we have accepted Christ. Because I want to encourage us to depend and to draw near to him. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we have been made right, if we are a child of the loving God, we can approach his throne with confidence, it says. Now, this probably doesn't sound as earth-shattering to us as it would have been to the original audience. We have a democratic government, we don't have kings, we don't understand the degree of abnormality it would be to approach a throne, a ruler, in this kind of a way. But maybe I can shed a little bit of light on this. Um, I spent several years in the military, and I came originally into uh, the Air Force as an airman. 
Um, an airman, if you're more familiar with the army, is the equivalent of an army private. So as low as you can go in the rank structure. The military is organized in both enlisted and officer ranks. Officers always outrank enlisted. Um, and military law and structure requires certain respect be given, therefore, to officers. So technically, whenever I would go to an officer's quarters or to their office, I would have to announce myself and give a reporting statement. That was, uh, Sir Airman Red K reporting is ordered. Even if I came over, I still had to say that. They would then salute back and tell me to either come in or just get out and go away. I had to ask permission to come in and speak with an officer uh, for their time, even just to step into their office. In the military, according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, military law, even showing disrespect to an officer could be severely punished. Therefore, especially if you didn't know the officer, there was potentially a degree of apprehension one might have before approaching an officer. And that was more or less true, sometimes. At least, for most, with the exception of one officer for me. My father. My dad was an officer in the Air Force, and he actually worked on the same base across the base. And there was never that degree of apprehension in going to his office. I never need permission. At least I never asked. I just popped right in. I didn't wait for an invitation. I just came in and sat down on whatever chair was most comfy. They had much nicer, nicer chairs than my offices did. They were officers. And my dad was always happy to see me. The door was always open. Even if my dad wasn't there, every other officer who worked in that office knew that I was always welcome because I was his son. It had nothing to do with what I had done. I hadn't earned any additional privileges, per se, in any way due to my actions. But it had everything to do with my relationship with him. He was my father. I was his son. I was always welcome, no questions asked. God's office, his throne room, is always open to us. If we've been made right through Christ, if God is our Heavenly Father... We are always welcome to come to him at any moment. Why? One, we need to. We're dependent on him, as I've talked about for most of the morning, but also because our Heavenly Father loves us. The doors open. We are always welcome to come on in, sit down, and talk. We don't need permission. We don't need an invitation. Because we know because of our relationship with him, the answer of can we come in is always a loving and joyous yes. The answer of do I want to see you, do I want to speak with you is always a yes. We can always come to God in prayer for help, for guidance, because we are beloved sons and daughters. God wants us to come before him. Not just in the good times, but in the bad as well. When I screwed up and got chewed out, um, uh, as a young airman on the military base, it wasn't like my dad shut the door and said, go away. I could still just come on over and talk with him. I was his son. He was my father. Even when we have sinned, God is always ready to accept us back with open arms. 
at any point because he is our good father. In conclusion, God calls us to come to him as we are, as children dependent on him for mercy. We bring nothing to offer, nothing to the table for the grace and the salvation which he offers for us. Not our so-called holiness, not our actions, not our abilities ever make us right before God. The forgiveness and salvation that Christ has is something that can only be accepted as a gift as a child is dependent on their parent for care. After we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is still God who continues to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. We are still dependent on him for that. Are we required to be active participants? Yes. But it's God who ultimately makes the changes in our lives. And finally, just as we are dependent children to him, he is a loving father to us. His door is always open. We can come before him at any time welcomed as beloved sons and daughters before our father, the king. And finally, I know I've already said that once, but I know. If you don't know Christ this morning and you're here, you can come to him right now in your seats where you are and give your life to him to make him Lord and Savior of your life. And if you have questions about that, or or you want to talk with one of us, myself, any one of the elders, pastors are available. You can even turn to the person um, in the chair beside you, and they can probably talk to you more about it. So I welcome and invite you to do that this morning, if you haven't already. On that note, let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you uh, that you are so incredibly gracious to us. That God, as our Father, um, we are dependent on you. Whether we want to admit that or not, God, we are entirely dependent on you um, for the grace, for the salvation, for the forgiveness that you give us. God, we have nothing to trade. We can't earn it in any way. It can only be given as a gift. So God, I I pray, um, as we go into our final worship song, uh, that we praise you for that that, God, you give it to us freely as a gift. And that, God, as we leave here, that we recognize that we must continue to be dependent upon you. And that, God, your door is always open. And that we are always welcome. In your name we pray. Amen.